As you remain standing, let us turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, is where we find ourselves this evening. The back half is our text, verses 9 through 17. It's a text that we'll see shortly enough is, is linked to what we saw last week as Mark walked us through the first eight verses and 144,000. It's the first scene, if you will, the true scene, the true first scene, I should say. The true first scene and glimpse into heaven's glory that Revelation is going to give to us, so the first among several. And so let us hear now as God speaks to us, and once again through the word of His Son. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. A blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore... They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's follow the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank You for the comforting assurance that we find in texts such as these that remind us that there's a greater world to come, that there's a greater hope that belongs to us in Jesus Christ, that it is indeed possible to stand before You at the last day and not quake in terror and fear, but to stand strong in faith and love because of our Savior's work on our behalf. So work His grace into us by Your Spirit this evening, we pray, and we ask it in His precious name. Amen. You may be seated. If you think about the Apostle John's day, few things would have been as spectacular in his Roman context as what was known as the Roman triumph. So the Roman triumph, you may know about this from history classes past. Uh, The Roman triumph was the highest honor any army could receive in the Roman Empire. And if everything aligned perfectly and the victory was a sufficient quality and the Senate voted for it, so on and so forth, what happened was on the Roman triumph, the army and its general, of course, would enter into Rome and the city would shut down for a day. And then all you would hear and all you would see in Rome on that day of triumph would be sights and sounds of celebration. There'd be songs, there'd be declarations of victory, announcements of power. There'd be maps that were displayed of all the nations that were now being subdued to the the mighty Roman Empire. If you were a Roman citizen at this time, the height of celebration was was a Roman triumph. 
And with that in the background, what we get tonight in John's vision, his ongoing apocalypse, is a triumphant vision of God's people, of the Lamb who has conquered. There's adoration, there's adulation that belongs to Jesus Christ because He has conquered the enemy. And so many of you have been with us in recent weeks, but just in case you haven't, uh, let's bring us up to speed on where we are at this point in John's visionary experience. And we can simply just mention chapter 6. So it was in chapter 6 that the Apostle John began to see Jesus open the seals on this scroll. This scroll that the Lamb had taken from the Father's hand. This scroll that contained the destiny of all humanity. And he sees Jesus peel back six of the seven scrolls. And what we said in recent weeks is that those six scrolls, I'm sorry, those six seals, uh, they represent... John's first vantage point, his first perspective on human history between John's ascension, Jesus' ascension, I'm sorry, and Jesus' return. And if you remember those first four seals in particular, it's telling us that the time between Christ's comings tends to be a time of death, persecution, destruction, difficulty, pain, and trial, and, and tribulation. And a few weeks back, we got to the sixth seal, and it was the unfolding of the sixth seal that brought us to the end, John's first sweep through human history. It brought us to the end, the final judgment of Jesus Christ with the great powers and rulers on the earth. They cried out at the end of chapter 6, the great day of the Lamb's wrath has come. And they asked a question. Do you remember what it is? Who can stand? And so chapter 7 means to answer that question. Who can stand in the Lamb's great day of wrath? And what we saw last week, the first eight verses, is that those who stand, can stand, are the ones who are sealed by the living God. What John sees, if you glance up again at verse 4, following even through verse 8, he sees 144,000 people numbered, which is just a symbolic number. It's often mysterious to many people, but it simply is a symbol in Revelation. Numbers are always symbolic in Revelation of the fullness of God's church militant. It's the perspective on the church here on the earth. And so what we find today is the theme in our passage is not the church militant as much as it's the church triumphant. So there's this advancement to the question that finished chapter 6, who can stand? Our text is going to tell us the ones who will stand ultimately and finally is the the church, triumphant. Because it's going to switch scenes. What we saw last week is John really was hearing this church militant. It was the sound of the church militant that got his attention. In our text, it's the sight of the church triumphant that gets his attention. Last week, it was a people who were numbered. This week, it's a people who are unnumbered. Last week, it was those who were sealed on the earth. This week, it's those who are saved in heaven. And these are the people who can stand in that great day of wrath. So he's lifting our gaze, as it were. He's lifting up our eyes to the clouds above, to the triumphant glory that belongs God's people. And you'll see, if you just glance down again at verse 9, there's the language used there of a great multitude standing before the throne. So who can stand? Well, here's who can stand is what Revelation 7 is telling us. And I want you to see three specific things about God's standing people in the end of chapter 7. First, they're standing in celebration. Secondly, they're standing from tribulation. And thirdly, they're standing with salvation. So simply, standing in celebration. Look again at verse 9. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne 
and before the Lamb. So kids, you can imagine the scene. It's as though John's gaze is lifted to the heavenly places. And as far as his spiritual eye can see, he just sees people. But it's not just people. The important thing here is people from every nation, every tribe, every language. The reason that's so important is because here in the Bible's final book, we get to the fulfillment of a promise that came in the Bible's first book, Genesis, where God spoke to Abraham in his covenant that he made with Abraham. He said, in you, your seed, namely Jesus Christ, all the nations will be blessed. And it's here we find this picture of all the nations being blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see as verse 9 continues, it tells us something about their clothing and also what they're holding. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So we'll come back to what they're wearing in a second, but I'm more concerned right now with what they're holding. Kids, think of palm branches. Can you recall any time in the Bible when palm branches were a significant part of a significant story in the Bible? Certainly, the most famous story of palm branches in all of God's Word is Jesus made His triumphal entry on Passion Week into Jerusalem. People holding palm branches, waving them, throwing them down before Jesus as He's riding on the colt. And what were they saying? Hosanna. God, save us. And even into the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests used of palm branches. Palm branches were symbols of joy, symbols of, of celebration. So it's fitting then that you see them continue on in praise. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, this innumerable multitude. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We don't need to go too far into verse 10, but simply, surely it's enough for us to say yet again, Revelation is wanting us to recognize that salvation is a sovereign, gracious act of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It belongs to Him and Him alone. And so what you'll see then in verse 11 through 12, everyone in heaven joins in this great chorus. The elders, the living creatures, the angels around the throne. Notice verse 12, they burst out in worship saying, Amen. Blessing. Glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Students, it's almost as though they say, everything good. Amen. It belongs to the Lord. And surely you've probably noticed the number of you that have been walking through Revelation with us in recent months. How, how often there's this declaration of God's salvation and the immediate response of these saints in heaven. These angels around the throne with the living creatures and the elders as well as to sing in worship. That one of the most ordinary responses to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is exultant worship. That's so why Martin Luther once said, anyone who doesn't like to sing is nothing more than a clod. Because God's people are a singing people. Singing, standing in celebration. Now verse 13 in the first half of verse 14. Standing from tribulation. Because an elder, look at verse 13, it's almost as though he reaches down and taps John on the shoulder and he says, Hey, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? Uh, just last week, someone turned my attention to John Calvin's old catechism that he wrote for his church in Geneva. And it was a catechism that was written uh, usually to serve the children, the young people in his community and in his city. And like everything with Reformation catechisms, it's quite long and it's quite wordy. And once he gets to question 80, he starts asking questions related to the truth that Christ has been seated at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father. 
And then when he gets to question 82, he actually doesn't ask a question. He essentially rattles off language from Ephesians chapter 1. And what you mean by the Lord Jesus Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father is that he has been named above every principality, authority in heaven, and he's received the name that is above all name, period. So it's just a statement, not a question. And what he expects the kids to answer with is, it is as you say. In other words, well, you know the answer. Just tell it to yourself. And it's almost as though John says the exact same thing to this elder. Notice verse 14. Sir, you know. I don't know who these people are. I don't know where they've come from, but you know. Well, where have they come from? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So students, you want to think about this phrase, the great tribulation. Because this is not an overstatement. I certainly hope it's not. Is that if you reckon and realize the reality of the great tribulation as it's meant in Scripture, you probably won't think about the world in the same way again. You ought not. Because you might know that there's a, there's a school of thought that's been obviously pretty dominant in America in the last hundred years that would say there's this seven-year tribulation of which John is seeing here and speaking of here, from which God's people are going to be raptured out of sight and they're not going to endure it, they're not going to experience it. But that's, that's a very, very big stretch. What's, what's much better to say is it's a language that comes straight from Daniel chapter 12. It's language Jesus picks up in Matthew chapter 24, talking about the tribulation that will fall upon Jerusalem when it's going to be sacked in A.D. 70. But what the biblical authors do with the language of tribulation, taking it from this great day of trial from which God will deliver His people according to Daniel chapter 12, is they see, the apostolic authors, the entire period between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return as the great tribulation. For you tell me, what century has passed in that time period that hasn't been marked in the experience of God's people with anything other than persecution, pain, problems, suffering, trial, and tribulation? So here it is, he's picturing people that have been saved out of this life. They are standing from the tribulation. And then the question really becomes at the end of verse 14, well, well, who gets to stand? How is someone saved? Well, that's where we come to our final section, standing with salvation. Notice how verse 14 ends. The elder continues his answer. They haven't just come out of the great tribulation. Who are the ones? Well, the ones that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, just earlier today, children, uh, a few of the kids in my house were dirty. Uh, my, my youngest son, Boston, is the culprit more often than not. He just refuses to say no to any mud pit that he would ever find. And so he's washing him because, you know, if you come into the house and we're getting ready for church, I mean, you need to be clean if you're going to come into a gathering of God's people. Maybe you grow up in a household, you're playing outside, and you get dirty, and you get muddy, and your parents say, well, you got to wash up before dinner time because before you sit at my table, you got to be clean. And there, there's a truth in that that spiritually it's the same thing. Where God says, if you're going to come into my presence, if you're going to sit at my table, you got to be clean. But the astonishing reality is how people can be made clean according to God's plan of salvation. Because the reality, if you haven't reckoned with it before, realize it tonight. You're born in sin. By nature, you're a child of wrath. Therefore, spiritually speaking, you wear nothing more than garments stained with sin. Utterly black. Midnight in its darkness. 
And there's absolutely nothing you can do to begin to clean that off yourself. In fact, what the Bible tells us, if you try to begin to clean it with your own righteousness, clean it with your own effort, clean it with your own wisdom and strength, you only smear it ever deeper. But the great good news of the gospel is that there's a possibility for people like you and me that stand before the Lord completely filthy and dirty to be clean, washed white as snow, only because we have jumped into the river that is the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, kids, you wouldn't think, would you, if you took garments that were stained black with mud and dirt, the stench of sin, that if you just plunge it into a bucket of blood, that they would come out white. But that's exactly what God says happens with the cleansing flood that is Christ's blood. Only those who have washed their garments in Christ's blood get to stand before the Lord. It's only then those that have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, those that have repented and believed, that then can stand in these garments. And so you see the link then in verse 15. We're told, therefore, so these ones that have washed their robes, that are white in Christ's blood, therefore they get the experience of the new creation that comes in verse 15, 16, and 17. So what I want to do as we begin to close is meditate on what this text tells us about the glory of heaven. I spent some time, probably about eight or nine years ago, uh, reading a number of 17th century works on heaven. And one of my favorite ones is written by a pastor I'm sure you've never heard of, named William Gearing. And the title of his book is simply, The Glory of Heaven. And he says in the preface, he refers to his 300-page book as nothing more than a tract. But what he says is the purpose for writing this book is that you would meditate on the glory of heaven. For nothing loosens our grip on the world. His language is condemn the world. And grow in our affection and adoration for the Savior than diligent and frequent meditation on the glory of heaven. So kids, you want to pay attention to these final three verses. Because they give us at least three things that's true about heaven. If you've ever wondered, what's heaven going to be like? What does it mean to live in God's presence forever and ever? Well, here's your first glimpse according to Revelation. First of all, the church triumphant enjoys God's presence. Notice verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So the portrait and picture there is of heaven as God's sanctuary because God's there. Heaven is God's temple because God's there. The work of God's people for all eternity is pictured here as service. Just as the Old Testament leaders in the temple, the Old Testament priests in the temple would serve the Lord day and night, every hour of every day. The picture here is God's people serving Him, worshiping Him in His presence every hour for all eternity. And you might be surprised, perhaps you've even wondered this yourself, the number of times in my own ministerial experience where a well-intentioned, sincere church member has come up and asked something that sounds like this. Are we really only going to serve and worship God in heaven? Wouldn't that get boring after a while? Surely there's something else. And maybe you've wondered that. What else is there? Well, what you need to see is that the degree to which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternally fascinating and eternally worthy of worship is the degree to which your excitement over eternally serving Him in heaven will thrive and grow. 
You want to know the simplest way to tease that out? Just examine yourself over your own experience and enjoyment of worshiping in his presence on the Lord's day. For is it but a foretaste of the eternal life to come? A small appetite here reveals a small appetite there. It's the church triumphant that enjoys God's presence. Number two, verse 16, enjoys God's protection. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. You see, it's a picture, isn't it? Not just a provision, but protection from any harm, from any hurt, from all pain, from all problems. In God's presence, they all dissolve and go away. So it's enjoyment of God's presence, protection, finally, his peace. Look at verse 17. For the lamb in the midst, the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My kids, it's a surprising statement there in verse 17 when you really just think about it. The lamb is the shepherd, right? Lamb aren't shepherds. Sheep aren't shepherds. Sheep are sheep. A lamb is a lamb. But in God's majestic and mysterious economy, the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God, is the good shepherd of God's people. And you see, using language, isn't it quite similar to Psalm 23? He leads me beside still waters. So will the good shepherd lead us beside springs of living water. And he himself is the living water. And it's there among those peaceful, delightful waters for all eternity that he's going to wipe away all the waters of grief all the waters of loss, all the tears that flow from his people's eyes, such as the glory of the new creation. I know a professor at the seminary who has a phone that dings like five times every day with a notification from this app called the We Croak app. We Croak app. And that's probably about every three, three and a half hours, I assume, it, Divided up in his waking day ordinarily. This notification beeps forth and it simply says this five times a day. Just a reminder. You are going to die. Revelation is telling us in its own inimitable way over and over and over. Just a reminder. You're going to die. And death isn't the end. So the question is what will be your end. Like those at the end of chapter 6 that can't stand in the great day of the Lamb's wrath. Or like those in chapter 7 who can stand, for they've been sealed and saved. Those who can stand and thus enjoy God's presence forever, His protection forever, His peace forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would even, by your word and spirit, that you would guide us this evening, this week, to the springs of living water that is found in Jesus Christ, that our good shepherd would guide us by his rod and staff, that we might know his pleasure, that we might know his presence. Lord, lift our gaze to the things that are above where Christ is seated at your right hand. For we know that he is our life and he is our all. Sustain us, we pray, in this great vision of heaven, that we might be helped in our pilgrim journey on the way to the celestial city. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, let us stand together as we want to respond by singing this new hymn that's printed there in page three in lyrical form, but also attached in a song sheet in the back that's taking language from Revelation 7 verse 10 and Psalm 67 verses 1 through 3 and trying to put it into song that the nations worship this great king. So let us sing, let the nations be glad.